0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. this is Detroit today
1: we're going to talk about labor today the changing face of organized labor in America the seeming resurgence of labor focused politics and the roiling changes that are affecting Detroit's most famous union, the United Auto Workers. What lies ahead for organized labor in America? It's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, thanks for tuning in. So if you conjure up an image of a union member, what comes to mind? Maybe you think about the big automotive labor movements that defined us here in Detroit. And if you're like me growing up in the 70s and 80s in Detroit, There may be some images of the UAW, in particular, you just can't get out of your mind. Someone working shoulder to shoulder on a manufacturing floor in a jumpsuit, putting together some car or other large product. But, as I said, that's the image from the 70s and the 80s. And today's union workers actually look a lot different. A lot of new union members operate in the retail, airline, and tech industries. And they often operate at newer companies like Apple or Amazon or Google or Starbucks. But, of course, while they are somewhat different, and they certainly look slightly different, their demands are mostly similar to union members who came before them. They want higher pay. They want stable work schedules good benefits, and respect in the workplace. And for the first time in a half century, it may be that they have the wind at their backs. Americans broadly are more pro-union and anti-corporate than they have been in decades. Joe Biden, our president, is the most union-friendly chief executive this country has had in a lot of years. And the excitement around unions is pretty high. The beginning of 2022 saw a spike in union worker petition filings. And that's all despite the fact that union membership has been on a pretty steep decline for decades. A little later in the program, we're going to talk with a WDET reporter who's been tracking the changes that are going on with the UAW, the most famous union here in the city of Detroit. But before we get to that, we want to address some broader and more pressing questions. Where is the labor movement going? Why did old manufacturing unions not transition to service sectors? What are the new challenges and roadblocks that are ahead for new unions, and how long can they maintain this momentum? Is it real? Does it have legs beyond this moment? Merrick Masters is the chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University, where he's also a professor of management and adjunct professor of political science. He is also one of the foremost experts on organized labor, and he's here today to help us answer these questions. Professor Masters, welcome back to Detroit Today.
0: Thank you for having me, Mr. Henderson. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So we talked. You and I did a number of months ago about changes to unions, and we wanted to check back in and see what's changed since that time. It seems like there are more Starbucks and Amazon locations that are unionizing and are in the hard part of negotiations. Tell us, when I say that it seems that uh, organized labor may have the wind at its back, is that an overstatement or is uh, is that what we're witnessing?
0: I don't think it's an overstatement, but I think it needs to be put into context. I think that there are indications that labor is gaining momentum, but the uphill climb is still very steep. Certainly the inroads that have been made at Amazon and Starbucks are noteworthy and they dominate the news media. But there's a much broader story that shows that labor faces many obstacles to trying to uplift its percentage of the workforce that's organized from really historical lows.
1: And let's talk about those lows. Uh, As I said, the 1970s and 1980s, the decades in which I grew up in Detroit, were still very much defined by unionism. I have so many memories from my childhood of just the presence of, of unions, uh, the neighborhood where I was born over on the west side uh, near Livernois and Grand River, um, the people who lived up and down the street where where I was born, so many of them uh, would come home or go to work in in jumpsuits that uh, that defined for me the, the auto work uh, that they were doing or the uh, auto supply work that they were doing. and they were all, Union members, a lot of them had UAW patches on on their jumpsuits. Uh, my mom was a nurse in the nineteen seventies and eighties, and was uh, was of course part of uh, the, the the unions and the union movements that uh, that were organizing healthcare workers uh, at that point. And of course, the UAW was everything I can remember. the Local news constantly had a story about. Uh, about the Uaw about who was the chief executive at the uaw i mean it was everything and and it all seemed to go away almost overnight i mean it, the, the the city changed dramatically in terms of uh, that definition that that unions uh, gave to us talk about i guess why and how that happened and how we got to this historic low that you're talking about
0: well, it's very interesting. Let's take the point in time of the early 1970s as a basis of comparison. Uh, in the early 1970s in manufacturing across the United States, and the numbers were higher in Michigan in this regard, and certainly in the Detroit area. But about one-third of the manufacturing workforce was unionized, and in the manufacturing workforce constituted a substantial part of the US labor force. Uh, Today, the manufacturing workforce is a fraction of what it used to be in terms of the total numbers. And the rate of union membership in the manufacturing sector is just 7.6%. Now, that's a decline of about two-thirds in a 60-year, 50-year time period. Um, And all the more reason when you look back at the late 60s, early 70s, the UAW was king of the mountains, so to speak. Its membership peaked at about 1.5 million members in 1979. And it has roughly 400,000 members today. And uh, obviously, the number of auto workers is just a A fraction of what it was before. You had 450,000 members of the UAW and General Motors in the late 1970s. You have less than 50,000 today. Uh, So by any comparison, labor is a skeleton of itself. And the growth in the economy has been in the service sectors. And when you look at, you know, the representation of unions in the service sectors, whether it's uh, business services or financial services or leisure and hospitality, it's relatively low. It's certainly under 10% in the information sector. In the information industry, it's about 10%. Um, You know, in financial services, which has got about 9 million employees in the US, the rate of unionization is about 2.2%. So the uphill climb that they face is is massive. And I, I'll throw a couple other numbers out there to put this in perspective. There's been a lot of talk about Starbucks recently. Uh, well, there has been a lot of activity. There's been a lot of petitioning to unionize and a lot of uh, elections have been held about um, 200 elections have been held, 200-plus elections have been held, and unions have won the overwhelming majority of that. But still, in total, the number of employees involved is less than 10,000. And that's out of a workforce. The number of employed people uh, is about 140 million. Uh, And so we're talking of uh, substantially less than one-tenth of 1% uh, of the workforce. In Michigan, there's been a lot of attention given to Starbucks as well. But in the last fiscal year, which started in October of last year, there have been 70 petitions filed in Michigan to unionize, and the total number of workers involved in those petitions is just 2,300. And and that's out of a workforce of over 4 million. So that gives you an idea, I think, of the magnitude of the uphill climb that labor has to um, gain in order to um, break through and reverse the trends that have been going on for decades. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, And it's not just the change in work and I guess the, the shape and form of work that led to decline in in organizing and in in union membership there were a lot of politics involved here as as well republicans of course uh, have have become very anti uh, union and and sought right to work laws in in many states including here in the state of michigan and democrats who for a very long time were allies of organized labor kind of Went away from from that allyship in in some important ways, or at least de-emphasized it. Uh, talk about the 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 I guess uh, the the way in which politics kinds of kind of aids this this decline. And in, in you, you union hit membership. the
0: nail on the head. We've looked at polls. There's a, a Gallup poll which is cited annually that shows that. of the American people approve of unions. The number is higher. It's about 77% among the Generation Z. Uh, And this number has varied widely, but it's at a relatively high point uh, by historical standards, particularly in comparison to what it was in 2010 when it reached its low point of just 48%. But corporations if there's one thing that unifies american corporations it's their opposition to unions and a number of corporations you might say have taken liberal positions on certain social justice issues but you rarely find that taking place on labor issues and so they spend a great deal of money amazon included to resist union organizing efforts and it's part of their location strategy where they locate Their sites. It's part of their overall economic strategy to keep a union free workforce. And even at places like Starbucks, you have the CEO uh, who's on his third tour of duty saying that, you know, we don't really need unions to represent our partners. They call them partners to, to suggest some sort of egalitarianism in the workplace. And that uh, those third parties really are interference uh, that prevent us from doing the kinds of things that we need to do for our members, uh, our our partners. And therefore, um, they've openly said that they will give certain kinds of uh, perks or um, additional benefits or compensation to uh, sites that are non union that they will not give to those that are union or are about to negotiate their first contract because they are union. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that suggests the level of opposition that um, unions face, that employees face when they try and organize. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm talking with um, Eric Masters. He is chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University and a professor of management and adjunct professor of political science. He is an expert on organized labor in our city and in our country. Uh, He and I are talking right now about the current state of organized labor in America, some important wins taking place for labor after years of Uh, big losses. Uh, We've seen union membership decline quite steeply since the 1970s and 1980s uh, here in Detroit and around the country. Uh, But what does this new interest in organized labor actually mean? Does it have legs beyond uh, this moment? And does it signal yet another shift in the American workforce? Uh, We would love to hear from you during this conversation Uh, What do you make of all the excitement around joining unions all of a sudden? Uh, Are we on the edge of a rise in union membership that would uh, equal the decline that we've seen over the past several decades? Uh, Why do you think union membership is low today? And do you think that's changing? Uh, We'd love to hear from you, especially if you're part of a union or if you're trying to form a union. Call and tell us what that process is like. uh, How... Uh, the corporate environment responds to organizing. Uh, do you get political support to try to start unions in your workplace? Uh, also give us a call and let us know if you're not a fan of organized labor or unions. Do you think it makes it harder to have uh, have a workplace work? Uh, do you think it's harder to manage uh, unionized shops? Uh, do you think that uh, unions don't bring workers better lives and benefits uh, than than their employers would do on their own. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, we've got a question on social media that I want to start off with, America. Uh, uh, Michael on Twitter says, was the decline in manufacturing membership in unions predominantly caused?" by company owners and Wall Street, or by union members thinking unions are not useful? I think that's a really uh, key question. Uh, union. We're going to talk a little later about the UAW and the problems that they have been having uh, internally. And I think that those internal struggles are something that lots of people are familiar with. Who is primarily, I guess, responsible, though, for that decline? Is it unions themselves not not serving their members in a way that they thought was critical? Uh, or is it this change in uh, corporate environment and politics? Well, certainly there's blame to go around all sides. But I would
0: say the principal blame lies in the structure of the U.S. economy, which is dominated by the the wealthy and those that have supported free trade policies, which have led to the exodus and offshoring of jobs. Um, And so um, treaties like NAFTA uh, and um, our trade relations with China have cost lots of manufacturing jobs, which have resulted in the decline of unionized workers. I would say that um, if I were looking to um, place blame on the unions, it wouldn't be so much that they did a poor job representing members. I think in fact, the uh, opposite is probably the case. They did probably too good a job uh, in trying to raise wages and raise benefits to where the companies could not uh, remain competitive with the onslaught of international competition with unfair trade rules. That's the kind of thing I think that they faced. Um, And if I would say, if I would look at where labor's at fault, it would be more from an institutional standpoint in that it was complacent. I believe the last time I might've been on your show, it was with Stephen Greenhouse, and he talked about the uptick in the labor movement at Starbucks and Amazon Mm -hmm. And he said one of the things that unions haven't done is invest a lot of money in organizing and there's a need to do that. Uh, I've just written a book which will be coming out in a few months on union finances and the amount of money that they have. And I'm working on a book right now about organizing Generation Z and such companies as Amazon and Starbucks. And I can tell you that there's a lot of money available in labor to pour into organizing. It's a very expensive proposition. And if you want these new entities like Amazon labor union and workers United that organizes Starbucks, um, to really gain traction and you want to export that model to other sites across the country, um, you're going to have to finance it to some extent and their labor unions have about i call it working capital it's the amount of their current assets over their current liabilities the national unions have about 4 billion dollars of that working capital available that they could uh, take part of and invest in promising endeavors to organize And I really think that that's what you need to see labor doing. Um, The traditional unions making a much stronger commitment to organize. And in the case of the auto workers to bring it home to Detroit, really they they need to be able to find a way to organize the new battery manufacturing sites. They need to find a way to organize the transplant plants, the foreign based plants in the United States. If they want to prevent this continual race to the bottom, in which they're constantly trying to fight. The push on the part of employers to keep wages low, to keep them competitive by international rates, and to keep the um, loss of jobs to overseas or um, uh, bordering countries such as Mexico, uh, where wages are lower. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our discussion with Merrick Masters of Wayne State University about organized labor, what's going on with it now, what may be coming in the future. We will also get to you on the phones and on social media, Peter, Christopher, and Richard in Detroit, as well as Earlsworth in Detroit. You'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number number here on the phones. That's 577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Talking about labor in America this hour, we're talking about the current movement in labor, which seems to be something of a resurgence for labor, organizing in lots of places where we haven't seen Success in many years. The question is, what does that mean? And is it a real pushback against the steep declines in union membership and power that we've seen over several decades? Our guest is Merrick Masters, Chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University and a Professor of Management and Adjunct Professor of Political Science. He's an expert on uh, organized labor in our country. Uh, We also want to hear from you. What do you think of this new steam that uh, unions seem to to, to be experiencing? Uh, What do you make of uh, the resurgence of organized labor? We also especially want to hear from you if you're somebody who is trying to organize a workplace or has tried to organize a workplace? What was that like? And what was the corporate response uh, to your idea about uh, organized labor? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into this, into the conversation. Let's start today with Peter in Detroit. Peter, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Stephen, and uh, thanks, Professor Masters, for the very sort of sober assessment of the actual numbers at Amazon, Starbucks, and uh, union election efforts in Michigan. Uh, But I do think it's great that Stephen's doing this show. Even with those limited numbers, I think what it points to is that these efforts can be inspirational to others, and that it can spread, hopefully spread like a virus, to other areas. But to do that, Yeah, it's going to have to get beyond just the sort of capital that uh, the current union establishment has. It's going to have to become sort of a social movement or cause like it was in the 30s, where, you know, your neighbor, your uncle, your cousin, your niece was uh, very much interested in having more of a say and power in their workplace. It's got to spread like that. And I think what's interesting is here we are in 2022, and I think it's a generational sea change in terms of you know, 20 to 30-year-olds recognizing the power imbalance in our society, how much the wealthy, the CEOs, management are making and living off of the top 10% of our population, how well they're doing, and how the rest of us are not, and that that needs to be changed. I think for that to happen, yes, it has to be sort of on the scale of a social movement, but it also has to recognize what Professor Masters Cited as sort of the complacency of the union establishment over the last decades, and mm-hmm. I think it will mean remaking unions. So I'm very much interested in the next topic, which is about what's going on in the UAW mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think that it's really a sort of come to Jesus moment for both the UAW, at least for the membership, that things have to change if we're going to confront the actual power that we're up against, that yeah. we're not partners in this economy. We're us versus them, and uh, we're us, and we have to get our act together.
1: Mm. Uh, Peter, I really appreciate the call and the uh, and the thoughts. And as you as you say, we are going to talk specifically about what's going on in the UAW with uh, WDET Sasha Ryan, and just a little bit. But uh, Merrick Masters, rea- react to what Peter's saying here.
0: I, I think he made an excellent point, and that that's one of the things that I've been working on in my research is that just how can labor structure a situation in which they could invest that capital wisely. You don't want to throw money at the problem and just say here's a blank check we're going to give money to the Amazon labor union or our workers united and say organize at whim. You want to pick out those areas where it's most ripe, where they have the right model where I think the right model means that it's indigenous that these are workers that are at the site that want a union they're willing to take a risk they're willing to pay the price they understand the consequences of trying to go out and organize um, but they're nonetheless willing to bear the risk and I think that what labor needs to do is to get behind that so that it can have a rapid response and say When these things are available, we can give you the tools that you need to navigate the legal environment, to file your petitions, to communicate with workers. Uh, to help you organize a campaign during uh, before you have the certification election to really jumpstart the process. And I would hope that the UAW, as well as other large unions, and the UAW is one of the more munificent unions financially, although it's by no means wealthy by corporate standards, Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it can help uh, finance uh, efforts to organize that are smart, and swift and responsive to the demands of workers at various sites yeah
1: yeah uh, peter really appreciate again the call yeah those uh, were excellent comments i think i think you hit the
0: nail right on the head uh, and the way you um parsed it was very
1: very um thoughtful yeah yeah uh, let's go next to alberta in detroit alberta welcome to the show
3: Good morning, and thank you so much for taking my call and to the doctor who's on. I appreciate all of your comments. Let me be real quick. I grew up in a neighborhood like you, Stephen, over here. on Well, you are on the west side. I'm on the east side. Uh-huh. And I watched, <laughs> I watched as a child the men, because it was primarily men who were working then. The men in the neighborhood who worked at the plant went to work every day and came home and had dinner with their family for the most part. Hmm. My father was in the gas station. He had to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. He was gone before morning and got home after night. And I always said to myself, it's good to have a union because in the, at the end of the day, I'd rather have a union and not need it than to need it and not have it. Hmm. I respect so much. There would not be a middle class without the union. And so I just wanted to go on record is saying that, Stephen. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Alberta, I really do appreciate that, uh, that point. And uh, Professor Masters, we haven't talked that much about the ways in which unionization, organized labor changed work for mm-hmm. Americans, made it more tolerable and, and less less harsh, mm-hmm. But but also how in the current context of You know, the the, the great resignation, for instance, Um, you know, the the, the number of people who are really rethinking work and the place it has in their lives. Some of that is about workplace conditions that look different because of the decline of of unionism over 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 time.
0: Absolutely. And I think that people realize that we're in a struggle. This is a fight. This is a fight. For economic justice is to fight for the opportunity for those that have been left behind by the economy for so long to regain their rightful position. And it's very hard for people to do that on an individual basis. It's much more likely that they're going to achieve success on a collective basis through unions. And unions raised wages, they provided benefits. And it's interesting that there was a time in which we hailed the UAW for negotiating the gold standard and benefits and raising wages and providing for better working conditions. And then we turned around and condemned them for the same thing and said, "Um, you've got all these lucrative benefits and lucrative wages, and it's too much. We can't have it anymore. But yet we never come out and say that um, executive compensation is excessive or that bonuses for managers are excessive. uh, We instead focus on what the guy on the line makes and the man or woman on the line makes and that that's excessive. I think we need to have a little bit of a broader perspective here and realize that there's been a growing concentration of wealth, a growing concentration of power in the United States to the detriment of the middle class. And that if unions don't rebound, the struggle to maintain the middle class and expand it, and the opportunities that go with that, are diminished as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, Alberta, really do appreciate the call yeah. and that, that that great insight. Uh, that brings
4: home,
0: you know, the really the personal aspect of it. That this matters in the day to day lives of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely.
1: Let's go next to Richard in Detroit. Richard, what's on your mind?
5: Great,
6: uh, great show, Stephen, as usual. And uh, great to talk with you, Merrick. I've worked with you for a number of years at Wayne State. Uh, I'm actually a labor attorney, and I've mm-hmm. seen uh, some of the inside of, of how things go and, and the, the, the really disturbing tactics that employers use to try to prevent unionization. It, it really isn't – it's really not all that difficult. The, the, the slides that Merrick just got through talking about from how much, how much more uh, density unions had in the workplace going down the last 30, 40 years, you've also seen a, a separation between the wages of what CEOs and upper management make versus the hourly worker, to where now I think it's like 350 times more a CEO's salary is to the typical hourly worker. I mean, that's no accident that corporatists are going to prevent and block unionization, uh, firing the union organizers, or, you know, what Mary just talked about, giving increases to those uh, places that don't have unions so that you can go to the, the, the non-union folk and say, hey, look at the unions over here. They're not even doing as good as you are, and they're paying 40 bucks a month. I mean, these are just many, many tactics that are seen. Uh, one thing that I wish uh, unions would do, and I know I'm glad unions are doing, is they're focusing on the organizing campaign, but really need to recognize that the organizing campaign does not end when you win certification. Hmm. The fact Hmm. that you won the election is the first leg of a multi-tiered organizing effort. You've got to continue to organize, because what happens under law is that that within that next year, they can have another vote to decertify the union if you don't have a union contract. Hmm. So getting that union contract, continuing to get your workers energized, engaged in the union, that talks to negotiate the union contract, is as important, if not more important, than the effort to organize in the first place. So just continue the organizing effort, even once you win, it gets even more robust. It should yeah. get even more robust.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, point, an important point to make, Richard. I'm glad you called, uh, Professor Masters. That that idea of the constant vigilance, I think, um, that labor has to has to embrace, is is, I mean, that, that's huge as we're seeing these these new these new workplaces organize.
0: Yeah, R- Richard, it's good to hear your voice. Hope you're doing well. Uh, thanks for your comments. Um, say, I, I really agree with what you said, and I'll make two points real quickly about it. First, about um, negotiating the first contract. That's real important. I think that's where the um, the, the labor forces, the labor powers to be that, ha- that have the resources now can really be of help Because all these Starbucks sites that have organized now, and you've had over 180 of them, they're going to have to organize their first, they're going to have to negotiate their first contracts. And they're going to need help in doing that because Starbucks will bring a battery of attorneys to the negotiating table. And there's a lot of devil in the details. So you really need help in that regard. The other thing is that the gap between the CEOs and pay and the um, pay of the uh, average worker, so to speak, which is now reported in the securities and exchange commission forms that they file annually. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, These CEOs don't make a lot of money compared to the hedge fund owners and those that come in and buy the companies and then strip them down and sell them. These folks make um, obscene amounts of money um, and they make it off the back of companies that they take and try and really dismantle and put together for a profit. So um, the concentration of wealth is far greater than we recognize. And until we do something about it, we're going to have a society of have and have nots that is going to be increasingly polarized. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, again, Richard, uh, really appreciate the call and uh, those insights. Let's go to Earlsworth in Detroit. Earlsworth, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey.
5: Hey, it's good to be on the show. Good. I've lived in uh, Detroit uh, being in the barber shops, uh in the 40s. One of the uh, members that was a member of the uh, big three pointed out the fact that when the union got the company to take out company dues, they became company men. So that's, that's uh, a part of the problem because God has put enough here for all of us is just being unevenly distributed. Hmm. So in order for the, the workers to get their fair share, it's got to be done from some organization that's looking out for for their uh, for their behalf.
1: Yeah, Earlsworth, uh, really appreciate the call and and that perspective, that historical perspective is so important here uh, in in Detroit and and how things have changed since uh, the 1940s and 1950s when um, when unions were just kind of finding their legs here. Uh, in the city, uh, professor masters, before we have to, to end the conversation, I want to get you to talk just a little about what you see in the next, uh, five, maybe 10 years, uh, as, as this, this organized movement does get, you know, a little traction and, and, and gets more people in involved. Are we really going to see labor have more of an influence than it does now? <clears throat>
0: I think there is an opportunity that needs to be taken advantage of. And I think that labor should not sit and wait for Congress to change laws or uh, government agencies to move regulations to make it easier to organize. I think that they really need to go out and do the hard work in fighting the uphill battles and galvanizing the support that they might among the younger generation which is more diverse and sees more realistically the inequities in the workplace and the imbalances. And if they can tap into that spirit, that willingness to to take a chance and to fight for the middle class and to fight for a better future, I think that they'll be able to uh, gain some, make some significant headway in organizing, and that we will begin to reap the benefits of that in the not too distant
1: future. Okay. Merrick Masters, uh, always great to talk with you about these things. Thank you for
0: having me, Mr. Henderson. I appreciate it. You have a good
1: day. Yeah, you too. All right. uh, We're going to take another quick break and we come back. We are going to continue discussing labor unions and talk specifically about changes that have been developing within the United Auto Workers right here in Detroit. Sasha Ryan, producer and reporter for WDET, will join us and we'll continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. When you think about symbols here in Detroit, it's harder to think of one that has had more association with the city over a longer period of time than the United Auto Workers. Here in Detroit, they represent collectivism, hard work, the automotive industry, and even a roadmap to the middle class. But of course, those symbols had more power in the past than they do now. Today, the UAW is mired in corruption. It has bled members over the decades, and it's struggling to reimagine itself as a strong united union. But that may be changing after convictions of corruption by union leaders and executives at Fiat Chrysler. Union members now have a chance to choose the International Executive Board directly instead of being represented under the delegate model talk about the corruption in the UAW and what the recent voting changes mean and what might, might lie ahead for the union, we have WDET reporter and producer Sasha Ryan here with us. She has been actively covering all of these stories with the UAW. Sasha, welcome to the studio.
7: Hey, Steven. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And before we start, I should note for full disclosure that WDET first got started with help from the UAW, and many of our employees here at the station are, in fact, UAW members. Uh, But Sasha catches up just a little bit. What are the recent spate of corruption scandals uh, that have been going on at at the UAW? And talk specifically about the conviction that happened at Fiat Chrysler and the consequences, I guess, of that conviction.
7: Well, there were federal investigations that started around 2012 um, into corruption in the UAW. And um, since then, there have been about 16 convictions, including uh, Fiat Chrysler pleading guilty to bribing union officials, um, about three and a half million dollars in bribes that Fiat Chrysler paid to union officials, and of course Fiat Chrysler now merged with Pujo and is now Stellantis. And about around that same time is when the they pled guilty to pleaded guilty mm-hmm. to to those convictions. And um, but the the corruption in the union is so much broader than that. There are just at the highest levels, you know, there were two UAW presidents um, who were convicted. There were vice presidents. There were region directors who were convicted. And, and many of them were convicted on things like stealing money from the union mm-hmm. or fraud, um, bribery or shady contracts with union vendors. Um, and so it, it was really this broad ranging, massive investigation with Just incredible. It's really been an incredible investigation. So then what happened is the union and the federal government entered into a consent decree. And one of the results of that is that the union was required to allow members to vote on how to elect union membership. So the International Executive Board is now elected by uh, direct elections as opposed to delegate elections. Hmm. So previously and always, UAW's leadership was elected by delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and that's the event that just happened in Detroit a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But now, as of December, twenty, the the vote happened in December of last year, um, members can vote for their leadership directly and members can kind of nominate directly and that also happened at the constitutional convention this year
1: yeah so um that that different voting structure means that individual members have a lot more control a lot more say i guess over leadership than they have had before so we had that constitutional convention it was the 38th Uh, recently here Uh, what happened especially after all these new opportunities for change had uh, already come down the pike
7: well, it was a really interesting event. Um, I would say the idea of reform was really the the central theme of this event. Whether you were there as a reformer, or whether you were someone who was kind of pushing back against this idea that the union um, has a big corruption problem, and there were several people who wanted to push back against um, that discussion and that characterization of the union, um, and but. The people that I talked to, including veterans of many conventions, said that this convention was the most democratic they have ever seen, that there were some really historic moments where uh, discussions that usually are very internal to UAW leadership or to the Constitutional Committee came to the floor for delegates to vote on broadly, um, where people were able to say, I, I would like to be a member of the International Executive Board and you know have their nominations on the floor. And uh, where the elections didn't happen then at the convention but will happen in the future so that people who are nominated can campaign uh, without being kind of a part of what they call the administration caucus. Mm-hmm. So... It was, it was a, it was a pretty wild event, actually. Um, yeah. the, there's always with these things. And I think, you know, the way unions work, there's some weedy things you can kind of get into, mm-hmm. but um, there were, there was a lot of enthusiasm. I think a lot of excitement around democratic changes um, and a lot of concern of, of round business as usual coming down from the leadership.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh as always the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 call and tell us what you make of what's going on with the UAW Detroit's uh, most famous union uh also give us a sense of your sense of the changes in unionism more broadly which we've been talking about all hour the resurgence of interest in organized labor uh, in many different sectors here in America. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll include you in the conversation that way. Let's go to Ron in Detroit next. Ron, what's on your mind?
4: Uh, Can you hear me okay, Stephen? Sure can. Yeah, okay. Well, I had uh, guest status at the convention. I'm a 30-year retiree from Ford. And this convention, uh, the, the administration caucus did in the end maintain their control, but it was the biggest challenge from uh, rank-and-file delegates that I've seen in all the conventions I've been to. And that one member one vote reform that was uh, voted in last fall that uh, Sasha Ryan mentioned, uh, that... that Uh, was the result of a lot of organizing, and the heart of it was uh, a caucus that I participate in, uh, UAWD.org. And in order to be uh, brief, I would, uh, you know, just urge anybody interested in the history of that one-member-one vote movement that we're now operating with for direct election by the members uh, if you're interested at all in that, go to UAWD.org and, and read more. Uh, mm-hmm. Even administration caucus uh, delegates were telling uh, people I know on the floor of the convention that even when they didn't agree with us, that this was a more democratic and uh, spirited convention th- uh, with more, more discussion than any they'd seen in the past.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ron, I, I'm really glad you called and shared that. Uh, I have not heard uh, a lot directly from people who were at the convention about how, how it went. And so uh, your, your first person account is, is really important. Uh, Sasha, I wonder what you heard from other people who were at the convention about uh, how they felt about these changes.
7: Yeah. And Ron is one of the people I, I was able to interview at the convention, mm. and several other pe- people. I, I interviewed some people who were running for office and were excited um, to be able to do that because they had not seen a path to do that before and especially felt that the path to do that um, kind of went through corruption of some sort. <laughs> to kind of, you, know, you had to kind of be a part of the machine in order to run. Mm. Um, I talked to... Some people who were um, really cynical, they were really worried that the um, that these changes would not be as powerful as they could be, that the administration caucus would essentially um, break down any reform movements and that the monitor, there was a federal monitor in place that kind of oversees elections uh, now and the union functioning to kind of, um, combat corruption might not be really overseeing the, the democratic parts of the union functioning that, that the monitors input might not help with the democratic functioning. Um, but I, I still think, you know, there was still a lot of excitement and, um, a lot of anticipation for elections which will are supposed to happen in the fall
1: hmm. yeah yeah uh okay uh sasha ryan uh producer and reporter here at uh, WDET. What's next for uh, the UAW? We've got about a
7: minute left. So, elections are coming up. Ballots uh, should be out in October and are due in late November. So, that's something to watch. One thing to watch in elections uh, I'm really curious about is how money is spent Mm. with all elections. So, I'm I'm curious about uh, money spent during the election. Also, next year, bargaining for the big three. So, how these changes affect those things. are. To be watched. Yeah.
1: Okay, Sasha Ryan, uh, great to have you here in studio. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. All right, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk about tax structure in the city of Detroit and what things we could do to make the tax structure make a little more sense around here. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.